0: Of Jesus, so let's. Uh, I'm going to show you. Did I get it? Yes, I got it. Okay, I'm good. Don't touch anything. We're good. Um, so it starts off the book of the genealogy. The the, the phrase here is Biblos Genesis, um, and so if you just translate that into regular English, you know, Book of Genesis. Um, so at, at the beginning, when the, the when the compilers of scripture gather together and they put this whole thing together. Matthew is the first, is the gospel that they put first. Even though it wasn't written first, they put it there. Um, There's this way that it starts which sort of harkens to like, hey, we're starting over. So Genesis, obviously the first book in the Bible. Um, And Genesis starts a long time before sort of the the, the writing of Matthew. And then Matthew uh, puts pen to paper and he starts over and he says, okay, um, now we're going to tell the book of Genesis. Of Jesus Christ it's going to be um, once again God entering into the world, um, once again, God doing something different in the world. and we're going to talk about what He did before and what he did now um, this morning, and oh, I lost it again. Okay, uh, Just stay there and I'll when I say hit the space bar," you, I think that's a thumbs up. thanks, Jay. Um, so I'm just going to get rid of this or I 'm going to be distracted the whole morning. Technology doesn't make things better sometimes. Um, OK, so uh, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump into this genealogy, and we're going um, to start with how to start a book, all right? So we're going to start there in just a second, all right? So let's pray. Father, thank you for this place. Thank you for these people that you have brought here, especially this morning. Um, bless them all for getting out of bed and coming here, and, uh, and I ask that you would just make this time together special, that we would, would connect, that we'd have conversations that were uplifting, that were are encouraging, um, that... We would see some things that we haven't seen before. Um, thank you for allowing us to wake up this morning with breath in our lungs and, and whatever health that we have. Thank you for that. Um, thank you for the lives that we live. Thank you for the friends and the family and all of the millions of blessings that we just live with every day and never think about how wonderful they are and how much they give us life. Thank you for those things. Thank you for your word. Thank you for preserving it, for thousands of years so that we could sit here and that we could get a glimpse into the minds of the early followers of Jesus and uh, open our eyes up to what they have for us. Thank you. In your name, amen. All right. So, um, so when you're going to start a book, when you're going to write a book, go ahead and put the next slide up for me. When you're going to start a book, you're not going to start it like this, typically, because it's not particularly fascinating today in the modern, um, in the modern day. Um, when we start a book... Uh, we tend to set a plot. Uh, we tend to um, write the answers to a whole bunch of questions. Next slide for me. The questions tend to look like this. Uh, who are you writing? Who or what are you writing about? Why are you writing this? Whatever it is, if it's a letter, if it's a book, if it is uh, some history, if it's some poetry, Um, At the beginning of your book, you're going to sort of answer, try your best to answer some of these questions. Uh, What is your viewpoint, religion, political ideology, your background, what story are you telling? These are all questions that the reader wants to know when they are starting your book. And so not many of us today sit down and write a book and say, hello, my name's Tommy, son of Tom David. Uh, Son of Priest and Phillips Jr., son of Priest and Phillips Sr., son of I don't really know who's before that. Um, but this is not how we start our stories or our letters or anything because it's not particularly interesting. It means nothing to us um, in these days. But in the original um, first century, when this was written, the genealogy answered every one of these questions. This is what it was for. It sets the stage for what you are about to receive. Um, And they each do it differently, and Matthew does it particularly brilliantly, and we're going to get there um, in a few minutes, but all these questions and more are going to be answered by the genealogy that Matthew lays out here, and it's not a unique thing to Matthew. There are genealogies, countless genealogies, all through the Scriptures going all the way back to the book of Genesis, and... They all have intense meaning for the people who are receiving these letters and these writings and reading them and reading them to their, each other and the people. Um, the Old Testament has tons of these. There's even this historian that we get a lot of information from in the first century, first and second century. His name was Josephus. And Josephus starts his book with a genealogy of where he came from. Um, one of the reasons people used to do this is because they wanted sort of people to know their pedigree. Um, because. This stuff kind of matters. The Jewish people in particular were obsessed with genealogies. Um, The genealogy that you knew, you would memorize it, you would carry it with you. And actually, if you read some of these in the original language, they tend to flow. They're broken into sections. Sometimes they often make them sort of rhyme. Um, And uh, if you knew your genealogy, then depending on what it was, uh, you qualified for different jobs that other people couldn't get. You qualified for different places like free land in different cities and different places in the Middle East. Um, you qualified to enter into different parts of the temple to worship. All of this was really important to the ancient people. So if you knew your genealogy, you would memorize it and you would say it because it sometimes would afford you different things. Um, so put the next slide up for me. Um, so this is a sort of a scale model of, of the ancient temple as best we kind of understand it. Um, And there is, um, the fascinating thing about the temple is there's all kinds of places and and rooms and sort of libraries in the temple where different records were kept. Um, In the temple, there was a record of debt that was kept. Whoa. Um, There was a record of debt that was kept, so if you owed money... that record would be kept here in the temple. Um, hit, the, hit the next slide for me. So there's a circle I'm going to put right here because there's three doors here where the Sanhedrin would enter, and there was a court that would happen in a room over here somewhere. Um, and in one of these rooms over here is where the genealogies were most likely stored, from what we can tell. And if you wanted to be, the Sanhedrin basically was the, uh, the first century sort of group of priests. Um, in the temple, they were like the, the religious leaders of the day, and if you, um, if wh- wherever you came from, whatever line you came from, these records, when children were born, they would be sort of scrolled out and updated and kept here in the temple. Um, and there's actually an interesting passage in this in, this, in, the, in the book of, of Ezra, where Ezra is this prophet who's actually um, instructed, "Hey, so we're coming out of exile; we're going to go back home to Jerusalem." We're going to work on the temple. We're going to rebuild it. And you, Ezra, are going to be in charge of sort of establishing the priesthood. And the people are going to... You're you're going to set this up because they've been exiled for a while. And these people don't know how to be priests. Um, And you are going to teach them. You're going to set up and get the whole priesthood functioning again, offering sacrifices and teaching. Um, And so Ezra... Um, as they're working in the temple, comes across the scrolls with the genealogies, finds them, opens them up, and realizes some of the people that are working with him in the temple said that they sort of descended from the tribe of Levi. And I guess in that time you could just kind of say whatever because nobody had access to the scrolls, right? So you're like, well, I'm descended from, like, a judge, so I should be a judge, right? And you could just say this and get the job. And so Ezra finds the scrolls and he opens them up, and he realizes that all these people that said that they descended from a particular family that had the right to work in a temple. And if you worked in a temple, that was kind of a sweet gig because you got—you um, didn't get land, but you got free food all the time. You had a place to live. You were taken care of and you always had a job. Um, and so obviously people are like, yep, that's me. I'm a Levite all the way, way back to whenever. And he finds the scrolls and he rolls them out and he says, whoa, whoa. everyone gather around. I don't see you, 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 and you here. Get out of my temple. And so they're all kicked out of the temple. And so these... Um, genealogies were actually a, a, a pretty important thing. Um, go to the next slide for me. So there are two genealogies in, um, in the Gospels, in the four Gospels. There's one in Matthew, and there's one in Luke. And they are um, fascinatingly different in, in the best ways. So um, the one in Matthew that we're going to study here goes from Abraham. Uh, it starts with Abraham, and it goes forward through the line of Joseph, um, and it lists Joseph as the father of, of Jesus. And so we have Abraham. It goes forward over to Jesus. And then you study Luke. And Luke actually starts his genealogy with Jesus and works backwards through his mother Mary all the way back past Abraham to Adam. And they're different. The Names are different. The lineage is different. And you kind of read this. And we are modern 21st century people and children of the Enlightenment. And we say, well, that's a problem. Because these things don't line up. Why is that? And so what we tend to do is we tend to come up with all kinds of creative um, reasons uh, why and what's actually happening to sort of say, no, see, you just misunderstood it. No, they, they actually are different, and there's a specific reason why they're, why they're different. Not a scientific reason, a Jewish, um, important, philosophically deep, spiritual reason why they are different. Um, you see, Luke goes from Jesus through Mary all the way to Adam, this was not something you did. You didn't, in the first century, when you're writing a genealogy, you didn't typically follow the woman's side. Um, And he includes several women in his genealogy. Matthew includes a couple as well. Um, And this was also not something you did in the ancient world unless you were making a point. Um, The vast majority of ancient history, in ancient Near East history that we see, all of it, it's all just centered around men, and there's very few stories of, 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 really of, of women and their importance in the Scriptures, in the New Testament especially, you start to see this rising up and people being treated as equals, and so you start seeing um, Jesus back to Mary, and it, and it follows her, her lineage back all the way to Adam, um, and there's a reason Luke does this, because Luke, when he's writing his gospel, is focusing on a specific um, aspect of the teachings of Christ, Mainly, um, he's focusing on sort of how Jesus is for everyone. Um, and so, there's this unusual tracing through women, and then you see this Jesus who is sort of for everybody. So, he, you, you always find Jesus among the poor, people in the margins, um, people who, uh, a Jesus who is embracing the least and the unexpected. And, and Luke also tells plenty of parables that the other Gospels don't tell, and so the parables that it has Jesus telling... Um, Some of them are about lost coins, lost sheep, lost people, prodigals, and all of them sort of being found and welcomed in because the point of Luke's genealogy is Luke is setting the stage. He's filling the genealogy with people who are ignored and people who we don't usually talk about. And he's filling the genealogy with these kinds of people because his idea... talking about Christ is, I'm going to focus on the Christ who is the one who is for everyone. And it's beautiful. And then you go um, to Matthew. Now, Matthew's style of writing, uh, Matthew's particular genealogy here is fascinating, and it's brilliant. Um, And it's it's actually, it's pretty crazy, and I, I hope I can do this justice and explain it to you. It's a little complicated, but I respect your minds. You guys are smart people. Um, So, um, in order to understand Matthew's genealogy, first you need to talk about numbers. Um, Go ahead and put the next slide up for me. Now, um, there was a system in the the Old Testament where um, they would sort of attach a letter to a number. Um, And so not only would your name or a random word in ancient Hebrew have a um, not only would, would it just be a name or a word with its own meaning, it would also have a number that could be assigned to this word. Um, if I were to translate this into English, it would look like this. So, like letter one would, letter letter A would equal like one. I don't know why I did this backwards. I have no idea. Um, letter B would be like have a numerical value of two. Letter C would have a numerical value of three. Hit the next slide for me. And so, if you were to write the word cat, you know what a cat is. It's this purry little annoying thing, um, and it would have a numerical value of twenty-four. Um, and then if you were to write your name, like Thomas, Priest, and Vilts, I would have a numerical value of 264. So each word had sort of this numerical value. Hit the next slide. It's called a gematria. Um, and this is still used in some aspects today. It's sort of for ordering things. Um, and it is, has a very long history. It goes back a very long ways. And it is included. This kind of use, it's usage is in the scriptures. And you see it. Um, and so let's take the name David. Next slide. So you have the word, the name David, it would look like this in the ancient Hebrew, and it would have a numerical value. Now, it would be spelled sort of in English, it would be like DVD, there's no vowels in ancient Hebrew. Um, next slide. Um, and it would sort of have a numerical value, so D would be four, just like English, actually. Um, and then the V would be six, and the next D would be four. Um, and so next slide, it would have a numerical value of 14. And stay with me, I know you're like, whoa, this is so fascinating. Um, It is. Relax. You'll get there. Um, So it has a numerical value of 14. Now, this is where it gets interesting in in Matthew's genealogy. Matthew is writing this genealogy, and he's breaking up his genealogy into three groups. Hit the next slide for me. So verse 2 through 6a, that's the first half of verse 6, and you'll even see them in the the paragraph separations, um, has 14 generations. Verse 6b-11, 14 generations. Verse 12-16, 14 generations. Um, and so if you're a first century Jew and you're receiving this letter and you're reading it, you're kind of like, oh, eyebrows up. This is interesting. What's he doing? And in case you like, we're not paying attention as a first century Jew, he gets to verse 17. Hit the next slide. He gets to verse 17 and he actually says this for you, just so you'll see it. So all the generations from Abraham to David... We're 14 generations. And from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to the to the Christ, fourteen generations. Just in case you're not paying attention. Next slide. So what he's doing is he's like screaming at them, David, 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 Jesus. Why is he doing this? Uh, and that is an important question to ask. And so those original questions that we have when you're starting a book. Why is he writing? What's the purpose of his writing? Who is he writing to? What's he writing about? These questions in the minds of the first century Jew start to be answered because Matthew has a point in writing his genealogy. So when you read this genealogy today, you tend to skip over it. And honestly, that's fine. It has literally no bearing on your 21st century life. It means nothing to you. Um... And so you kind of just, look at a whole bunch of names and you move on. Um, Oftentimes you tend to look at the genealogies and you say, oh, you know what we do with genealogies? We use them in math to find out how old stuff is. And so we look and we count backwards and we try to like, oh, we can estimate how old, how long ago Abraham lived. And this is the kind of stuff that we tend to do because we're children of the Enlightenment and science has sort of permeated every aspect of our lives. But a first century Jew would never look at a genealogy like that. He would see stuff like this. And he would say, why are we talking about David? What's going on? He's saying Jesus is is descended directly from David. And not only that, he's saying more than that. And you're going to gather in a group and you're going to talk about what this means. And it's going to spark a lot of conversation. right? So um, why does this matter? Why this guy David? Um, That is the big question for the reader of the first century who receives the book of Matthew. And that question goes back a long ways. It goes back to this guy that we've talked about a lot. His name is Abraham. And Abraham lived in a world that was tribal and everyone had their own gods and the tribes were out to destroy each other and wipe each other out. And then Abraham has this vision and this awakening and this divine voice and message that um, things can be different. There can be another tribe and this tribe can exist in this world in a way that blesses the rest of the world and this tribe can exist in a way that brings about the the reconciliation of people to not just each other but to God and not the millions of gods that they all worshipped but that they would all wake up and understand one divine God who has an intention for us to live in this world. Um, And so God tells Abraham, hey, this is going to happen through you. Um, and it's going to grow. And it's going to turn into a nation. And nations need kings. And so there's going to be a king. He's going to be a good king. And that king is David. And we read about this king, David. He's got his moments of tragedy and sin where he was revealed to be very much like you and I with temptations and, and suffering and, and missteps. But in the end, God uses him to be the greatest king that Israel ever knew and there's this particular verse go to the next slide in second Samuel um, in chapter 7 verse 12 and it says this and he's talking it's God talking to David when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers so we're talking about generations here I will raise up your descendants after you I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom And so God's people have always sort of just been waiting for the child of David to bring about this new king. A king that the world would follow. A king that when the world followed this king, um, we would find shalom and peace and goodness and the needs would be met and whatever we are, Um, entrapped by and enslaved in, we could be saved from here and forevermore. And so when Matthew starts his genealogy, this is what Matthew is doing. Go ahead and put the next slide up for me. When Matthew writes this genealogy and he separates it into three different groups of 14, um, this is exactly what he's doing. He's taking a group of people. And, and when you look at these names, um, it, there's some fascinating stuff in here. Um, because there's names that you might recognize. You know, Jacob, obviously. We've got Solomon, um, Uriah, Rehoboam. Uh, just, just lots of big names of, of these sort of famous people. But intermixed with all these names that you understand, there's a lot more names that you probably have no idea who these people are. Because they're nobodies. Um, And the way Matthew tells this is that these nobodies and these somebodies sort of come together to represent David and to do the work of David and to bring about the next generation. And the next generation, the next 14 generations made up of somebodies and nobodies. And in other words, the promise, the covenant of David is fulfilled not by just one person doing one huge, big, huge, massive thing. It's by generation after generation after generation of individuals, some known, some not known, but each being obedient to what God has called us to do and who God has called us to be, which is a tribe and a nation and a kingdom that blesses the world and brings peace and shalom and the kingdom of God into this world, into our neighborhoods, into our city, and into this world. And every time we move away from this, we find ourselves in exile. But as we move forward towards this, we find ourselves at home with God, bringing about the kingdom of God and the rule of the Messiah, Christ Jesus. Um, I mean, how do we view fame today? We tend to look at, we, we, and we tell each other in our writings and our books and our blogs and social media and everything, like, before you die... You should do something great for the world and you'll be remembered for the great thing that you do. And so we're all out there, right? Every single one of you are out there trying to do something great and get noticed and accomplish something. And we think this is somehow how the kingdom of God comes forth by like individuals doing great things. But Matthew, when he's writing um, his genealogy, um, this is not about individuals doing great things. Those great individuals that did great things are interspersed and equal with the nobodies who simply lived a life of simple obedience. And through doing this, they brought about the Messiah. They brought God into this world by simply nobodies gathering together and being obedient is how Jesus came into the world. I would argue this is exactly how Jesus still comes into this world. We are the body of Christ. God has no physical body here in this world except for us. The physical body of Christ is ascended in the scriptures as it's put. And we are the church. We. Like if God is going to put his hand on somebody, it's going to be the church putting their hand on somebody. If God is going to hug somebody, lift somebody up, heal somebody, that is us. We are going to do this. And so we gather together and we sort of represent David. We're sort of I know we're more than fourteen generations, but for the sake of the argument, we are fourteen generations gathered together to do the work of David, which was to bring about God into this world. And we need to recognize that. We will never be great, we will never be massive, hopefully we will never be recognized. This is not about us. We gather together and we are obedient and we give of what we can, our abilities and our and our resources. And we pray for the other local churches in Tampa that they would understand that they also gathered together, sort of are at David, bringing about God into this world. And so there's this great uh, message. It's like, a, it's like a, a wedding sermon that Dietrich Bonhoeffer preached. And there's a part of it there. Put the next slide up for me. There's, there's a piece of this, uh, of this sermon where he looks at this couple... That is getting married and they're starting a new family. And so they're going to represent a generation. And he looks at them and he says, This, you are a link in the chain of the generations which God causes to come and to pass away to his glory and calls into his kingdom. There's nothing that Dietrich Bonhoeffer says about you are a fountainhead of which all the world will be fed. Just you guys, you're going to do great things, and everyone's going to be like, Wow! You know. <coughs> Found on my mute button. (coughs) This is not what this message is. Dietrich is looking at this couple and saying, You are a link in the chain of the generations, and God is going to use this link, whatever it looks like, if you are obedient to Him, to God is going to cause you to come and to pass away to His glory, exactly what He's going to do, and lead into the next generation. And it is through generation upon generation upon generation of God's people, eyes open being obedient to what God has before us that brings about the kingdom into this world. And so, as you read the scriptures, you see these genealogies. You can skip them, and you can wonder why they're there, and you can pick them apart for their accuracy or their lack of accuracy, whatever you want to do. But for the original audience, these long lists, and honestly, the longer the better, um, they were signs of hope. Hope that Honestly, nobody has forgotten because how do you remember people that were obedient but did nothing great? You write their name down and you include them in the lineage of Jesus. That's how you remember them. That's how you talk about how wonderful it is just to live a simple life of obedience and love. They were signs of hope, these genealogies, hope that nobody is forgotten, hope that the average people living normal lives, not known for being heroes or coming from wealthy families or having royal blood, were all part of something bigger than themselves. So maybe you are here today and for whatever reason, society has kind of told you and you picked up on the idea that you are insignificant because you haven't accomplished something huge. Um, or maybe you were here, and when you were younger, you had these dreams, and they were going to be big, and they were going to be spiritual, and you were going to do something great for God. But now you're whatever age you're at, and you look back, and you see your position now, and something has fallen apart in your life, um, and you've lost sort of the ability, or the respect, or the know-how to do what you do what you planned on doing for God. Um, Maybe you just can't do it anymore because you have so many doubts creeping up inside of your mind that make you wonder whether or not you should even be obedient and follow this God anymore. Um, For all of those of you who feel insignificant, who feel like you have not accomplished what you meant to accomplish, who feel useless in the kingdom of God because you have not done something great, for all those who feel this way or some semblance of this, that is why Matthew and Luke and these ancient writers write genealogies. because the part that you have to play is today simple obedience and it has nothing to do with how many people see it because you are part of a people that is God's people that are actively bringing the kingdom of heaven into this world and this is how it's done. Um, And so this is a new year And uh, I love New Year's Day. I love any opportunity to like sort of say, "All right, we're starting over." Like I love baptism. I love all of it. Like I I love it Um, because I mean, the message of Christianity is this sort of new, new thing, right? I mean, the message of Christianity is tomorrow doesn't have to be like today. That's what resurrection. It's what represents. Whatever is dead today, um, tomorrow can be alive. Like we can we can fix things that are broken. We can bring them back to life. And so I hope that somehow this is something for you for this year as we start this whole thing up. You don't need to do anything great. Nobody's expecting that. God's not expecting that from you. Anyone who is expecting that from you, you don't need that in your life. All right? What you need is the simple daily obedience that you are part of the greater story, a link in the chain of the generations that God is going to use to do his work. Simple, loving Obedience. Eyes open to what things are broken and hurting, applying the body and the blood of Christ, praying for resurrection of these things. And that's it. And so what better way to end this? We're going to take communion. Um, Our communion servers, you guys can grab the elements and spread around the room. We do this every single week. It is the most important thing that we do as Christians because um, it is at the communion table that we are reminded that God has found not in these huge, massive things God has found in common everyday things. It's just bread. It's just wine. Um, But in the moment, it's more. It represents more. And it's us. It's a reminder that us, we as God's people, should start injecting God, Jesus, His story, His love, His justice, His grace, His generosity into every single moment so that the common moments become more communion moments and so we come to the table the communion table and we are reminded of the bread the broken body of Christ we are reminded of the wine the, the blood of Christ spilled for us and we are reminded as we dip it and we eat it that this is how salvation enters into the world the body of Christ broken for you the blood of Christ spilled for you and then the request from Jesus to follow him and allow yourself to be poured out in the same way however that looks. So let's pray. Father, thank you. Um...